Hi, it's Pete Price. This week's podcast is an interview I recorded recently with the Manhug podcast. It's the story of my aversion therapy. It's an important story. I don't like talking about it, but we need to. People need to be reminded of what it was like to be illegal as a homosexual in this country. It's not for the faint-hearted. Have a listen. Well, first up, a huge welcome to Pete Price. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Man Hug. I tell you what, before we even start, I'll say to you, I wish, I wish when you've asked me about my story, I wish that we had have had support because yeah. there was mm. no support. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. When, But I, when you said that, I just went goose pimply, oh, yeah. just thinking, if only... So I'm going to get upset in this interview. Yeah, yeah. But if only I'd have had support, yeah. it would have been a different world. And I think that's really important yeah. as to why this podcast is so important and what we thought would be full circle, really, of you know your experience and then what thankfully is available for young people today who are experiencing as well. So because yeah, the thing is, like you know, we met before uh, just by past meeting, just by chance, uh, and it was to do with uh, I've used your documentary. Uh, within teaching sessions, things like that, whatever, for the students to actually show this awareness. Because a lot of them think, oh, that was in the past. But, like, you know, we'll probably come across this about, you know, present potential future issues with regards to it. But can you tell us a little bit about the the Witness, the BBC documentary that you actually did? Yeah, well, it's the story rather than the documentary I want to talk about because I'm now a 77-year-old man and... My sexuality, I questioned from the age of 10 to the age of about 12. At the age of 12, I don't know where I got the strength from, but I went to the doctors, Dr. Lansley, who is no longer with us, and said that I think I'm a homosexual Mm. because, of course, the word gay Mm. did not exist. Um, And he laughed at me. He actually laughed at me um, and said... uh, It's adolescent, you'll grow out of it. I went back at the age of 14 after being in turmoil within myself and having no one to talk about. Because you couldn't say you're a homosexual. Because once you said it, it's out there forever and ever and ever. So I um, went back to him. The doctor, bless him, prescribed me Valium. Right. Thank goodness. At the age of 14, I put them down the toilet. Otherwise, I don't think I'd been here today. I think I'd have been a drug addict. Uh, from the age of 14 to about 18, I lived my life as an outrageous person, uh, and that's the way I cope with my sexuality. And because I then went into show business, my mum always thought I was eccentric. I'm adopted, so I never wanted to hurt my mother because she gave me the greatest right. chance in life. So yeah. I was given away. Uh, my first mother, my birth mother, was in the RAF. They could have a child at Wrexham. There was a big place there. You had the child, went back. Nobody knew you'd had a baby. Mm. And then you went back to the armed forces. But that's a whole other story. Yeah. Um, so my mom, Hilda May Price, brought me up and was the love of my life. And I never wanted to hurt her because I felt I let her down. And at the age of eight, I'm not very good on, on years, so I'm not too sure, but 18 to 19, I was working in a nightclub called the Cabin Club at the top of Wood Street. And I was a chef, then became an entertainer. That's where it all happened for me. And they were very um, understanding, Brian and Ian and Mrs. Windsor were the three owners. 
and they allowed me time off to go to London. So I would go down to London and be myself away from everybody. But I couldn't find gay clubs. I didn't know where they were or what to do. Mm. But I felt comfortable. But I remember first time ever, it was about 12 and 6 in old money for the return ticket. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> and I remember taking my overcoat off, which was very classy, putting it on my shoulders, smoking with a cigarette holder and mincing down Euston Station. But that was me. Yeah, That was where I could be me. Anyway, ah, there was a letter, stupid letter, dear David, if you marry... Peter, I'll kill myself. It was one of those mental letters. And I kept it. Why, I don't know. My mother was a very private person. I was a private person. She found the letter. It was hidden away and it fallen out. She wasn't, she didn't go rooting for it because she was very naive sexually in every mm -hmm. way. So she would never have understood. And I came home one Thursday night. It was three o'clock in the morning. My mother looked like she died. She was in bed holding the letter. She said, what does this mean? And I said, it means I'm a homosexual, to which she uh, promptly vomited everywhere and had a breakdown. She told me to get out. She apologised five minutes later for saying that because it was alien to her mm. completely, as sex was alien to her because she couldn't have children, so it was alien. Um, and then the very long story, eventually I sp spoke to her about it and we went to, back to the doctors and the doctor said, he can be cured, there is a treatment. So that's it, up to the cure. Mm -hmm. So that's the pain I lived through. Yeah. But the fear, for instance, I'll give you an example. The Magic Clock was the, the gay bar that everybody went to in Liverpool, opposite the Royal Court. No longer there now, it's the bus depot, the bus yeah. station. But we guarded each other. We looked yeah. after each other because if anybody came out the theatre and saw you in the gay bar, you were dead because the queer bashers were out, the blackmailers yeah. were out. Yeah. It was a horrendous time to live in. And we were a community, and I'll say right now, to every young person listening, never disrespect an older gay man or a gay woman, because we set the mm. bar for you. And there's a lot of ageism within the gay community. That's by the side. So that was the world I was living in, and then I was going for the cure. Mm -hmm. Right, because the uh, whenever the documentary itself, like you know, uh, the part, the witness program, whenever I actually showed it to students, I think a lot of them were. Some of them actually did think, "Oh, this isn't right. This isn't right." Showing us this, and I go, "Yeah, but this is what it used to be. This was seen as normal in a way, like you know, going for this." And I think for you, what you, this is me personally. The love you have for your mum, you went, I'm going to go for this. Did you know what you were, this sounds terrible, I'm going to say, do you know what you were letting yourself in for? No, no never in a trillion years. Yeah. And I never told my mother. I never right. told my mother because I didn't, when I tell you about it, I didn't finish the course. And if she, yeah. she knew I didn't finish the course and she in a way never forgave me. But if I'd have told her what they did, I think she would have tried and kill herself. It was that bad. Um, it, it, it's it's amazing that, that, that when it happened, there was a Dark Secrets yeah. was the first programme ever done by the BBC. Uh, uh, I think it was BBC Two. And it was me and two other people who lived through 
aversion therapy. Mm. By the way, it's aversion therapy, right. not conversion therapy. They are two different therapies. You've got yeah. a fighting chance with conversion therapy. With aversion therapy, you haven't at all. Mm. So the big day came and I went. Yeah. So what they did was they I, I got a lift. Nobody knew I was going to a mental home, a loony bin, because yeah. that's what they were called in those days. Um, and it was by Chester Zoo. And it was, it's now a West Cheshire Hospitals. Um, and it is still the, the big building, but we were in the, the missing huts. And when I arrived, um, they, first of all, signed me in, but under a different name. So no, nobody in the world knew I was there. Right. So I, because they couldn't put me into a, 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 a mental institute for being illegal, because I was illegal, because people forget it was a criminal offence. Yeah. You could get 10 years in prison for buggery. Yeah. You, you could get arrested for kissing somebody in the street and yeah. go to prison for two years. Nobody has any idea who didn't live through it, yeah. what it was like. So um, we got to Chester, to the, the mental home. They put me in under a different name. And for two days, I mixed with basket cases, mm. with people who had okay. real uh, health problems. And I'm not being politically correct in any of this interview over the words, because that was the day it was. I remember lying in bed, scared out of my wits uh, when... Um, the uh, person was around my bed, whispering in my ear, and then pissed on me at the end of the bed. And that's what they put me in, a normal 18 to 19-year-old who was coming in to be cured of being a homosexual. So that was the basis of what was happening. And I met a girl, stayed with me forever. She was about 29. She'd been in there for nine years into this um, diva. That's what it was called. Mm -hmm into Diva for having a baby out of uh, wedlock. That's what we were dealing with. And I straight away wasn't even thinking about the treatment. All I was thinking about was I'm not going to get out of here alive and nobody knows I'm in because there's a, 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 I'm under a different name. And that was the build-up to the treatment. Right, okay. And the treatment itself... Uh... I know there's there's different ways uh, of actually the so-called treatment, the cure and things like that. I actually liked what you actually said about the aversion, conversion, things like that, whatever. I've actually been researching this and one word that came up for me was repatriation therapy. And I just thought, what is that? Whatever. But that's another point. But with the therapy itself... Can you? I I I really hate dragging this up. Like you know, no, can no, you no. Tell people, I'm here to tell people because I want people to understand. Please tell people what you so, went through, please. And by the way, there's a dreadful, yeah. dreadful end to this story. A dreadful end to this story. Sadly, I know. Yeah, you know. Um. So there was. A, I'm in the office with the psychiatrist. And there's a Grundy TK20. I always remember the old-fashioned, for all you people out there, that's an old-fashioned tape recorder, and I've still got one under my bed at home. <laughs> Not a Grundy, but I've got one. So there's a Grundy, and this psychiatrist interviewed me for an hour, and we talked about every sexual act. 
but he put it in gross terms. So he was trying to make me feel bad mm. about talking about oral sex and anal sex and everything to do with, with sex. And lots of things he talked about I didn't even know about because I was still naive. I was still learning who I was, who I was going to be. Um, but I wasn't being negative, uh, except for the fear of not getting out alive. So um, we had the hour tape. So they then put me in a room uh, with no windows, only a small room, in a bed. Uh, and there was a, a stack of dirty books, mm. dirty books. Guys in bathing costumes. I mean, you know, I mean, it, it, now looking back, it made me laugh. There's no way any of them turned me on anyway. Just, it was just ridiculous. So there's the books. I'm in the bed um, in red pyjamas. Took a pair of red pyjamas with me. A nurse over to my right-hand side who just sat there and didn't speak to me, just sat there. And they asked me what I drank, and I drank Guinness at the time. So there was cases of Guinness. So they're giving me glasses of Guinness, looking at the dirty books and listening to the tape. And that lasts an hour. So that is the therapy. So we have an hour of the dirty books, drinking the Guinness, the nurse sitting there not speaking, me listening to the gross conversation. And that was it. Halfway through the hour, I was injected uh, with something that I knew what it was but I've wiped it out of my mind now mm -hmm. because I never want to hear the word again. Um, and that was halfway through the hour, which made me feel violently ill both ends. Yeah. To which I said, please, can I go to the bathroom? Because I don't feel very well. And then the nurse spoke for the first time and said, no, no, just do it in the bed. So I was lying in my own excrement, my own vomit, feeling very, very sad and very um, alone and very scared. And that was the hour. So it was the books, the drink, uh, the, the conversation, the injection, and that lasted an hour. And then another hour. And another hour. And after 72 hours of no sleep, nothing left to bring up either end. I'd had no food. I was being tortured um, and what was going through my mind, I can never tell you. Mm. What wasn't going through my mind is that I'm being offended by men in bathing costumes. I just wanted to get out. I thought I wasn't going to live through this experience. <clears throat> Excuse me. I sent for the um, psychiatrist who didn't come and see me, by the way, the nurse uh, liaised between him. And and he was very, very aggressive with me. What's wrong? I said, I want out. I volunteered because I volunteered this. I wasn't forced to go in. I volunteered. I want out. And he said, but we've got another uh, two days of this. And then we're going to put the electrodes on your penis. I said, if you put electrodes on my penis, what's the point of that? He said, well, if you get an erection over men being naked, I went... If you think that I could even think sexually with this vomit and excrement all over me and the stench in this room, I cannot explain what the room was like. And also, and please ask me again about the nurse if I forget, because mm -hmm. I must tell you about the nurse. So it was dreadful. I forced him to let me out. Mm. I forced him to let me out. I don't know where I got the strength from. I'm not a violent person. I wasn't aggressive. 
but I needed out and he was really angry and I honestly didn't think I was going to get out. I rang a mate of mine up who sadly is no longer with us. He picked me up. My mother was away for a few days. I went home and he I couldn't speak to him. He didn't even know what it was about. I lay in the bath for about eight hours uh, trying to scrub the filth off me. Her, my mother came home. She said, what are you doing here? And I said, I can't stay there. And she was very, very sad. She wasn't angry. She was sad. But if she'd have known what they'd have done to me, mm. as I said before, she would have probably killed herself. The end of that story is two days later, I accepted who I was, um, but never told anybody the story. And there was a wonderful club in Manchester called the Rockingham. And this is how long ago it was. You weren't allowed to dance together. You were allowed a waltz at the end. Two men were allowed to waltz together. But the boss would walk round to make sure you're not too near in case the police were in. That's the world we lived in. That's the world we lived in. I'm a non-violent person, but I attacked somebody at the bar and I wanted to kill them. I don't know how they got me off him. I don't know how they stopped me. The two doormen just pulled me to one side, and when I told them what had happened and who he was, the doorman gave him a slap outside. He was the psychiatrist. Mm. So the man that tortured me, the man I still believe to this day was getting his rocks off watching a young 18, 19-year-old going through this. And that was the day I said, enough is enough. And I never, ever, ever talked about it. And the only reason years later I talked about it was because there was five soldiers, I think it was two men and three women, at the Court of Human Rights trying to be allowed to be still in the forces. And they won the case, which is incredible. But I remember one of them saying, I even went for aversion therapy and it knocked me physically sick. I mm. went and threw up in the bathroom because I said it's not, it can't be happening still. It can't be happening all these years later. I went to a pal of mine who worked for The Independent. He laughed at me at the beginning mm. and then he started to investigate and doors were closed everywhere, nobody. And then a two-page article came uh, out in The Independent and then the rest is history. So that... It is it in a nutshell. Let me go back to the nurse. Mm. So the nurse, who was a good-looking lad, actually, because I remember at the beginning, I was it was a haze to me afterwards. I was walking through Liverpool years later, and a lovely man called Roger, and I've written about this in my column in The Echo, uh, it's out there to see, came up to me, beautifully spoken man, and works in the church, mm. and, and said... I was a male nurse in those days. It wasn't the same male nurse with me, but he was there. But he told me, first of all, he cried and apologised. And then it put another leg to the story. And the other leg is that most of those male nurses were gay. Mm -hmm. So they sat there watching me, but they couldn't say anything because they would be put there. Mm -hmm. And Roger was one of those male nurses and has apologised. We're now friends mm -hmm. and never, ever, every time he sees me, still says sorry. Just, I, I'm sorry I'm, you know, dumbfounded by it, blown away. But, you know, just it was that per chance meeting where I saw you, you were having your coffee out in the street mm -hmm. and I came up to you 
Uh, I think you probably were going to think, oh, he's going to say something about a lizard. So we'll mention that. <laughs> I later. Guess, yeah. But, well, and this is it. Like, you know, I'm thinking, well, I'll bring up the sec, whatever. However, uh, I. I actually, we should finish with that no, on a lighter no, note. No, I know, I will. <laughs> but what I do want to say is the fact that uh, I thanked you for what you have done for actually going out there and helping people, telling people your story. And uh, I'm getting chucked up by us, whatever. But mm -hmm. I really, it was such appreciation uh, for so many people actually out there. And the thing is, it's still going on. There's oh, without issues. any shadow of a doubt. And by the way, homophobia is alive and well. Oh, totally. And yeah. many countries in the world yeah. where it's still banned. And by the way, something else, and I've not talked about this publicly, uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times on my show, but somebody who helped me through these times was April Ashley. The first ever sex change. Yeah. One of the most yeah. magnificent women on God's earth yeah. who sadly has passed away. Passed away yeah. And yeah. she had a restaurant in London called April and Desmond's Eight mm -hmm. near Harrods. And she knew me from Liverpool and got me through some real bad times. Mm -hmm. And I could ring her yeah. when I was struggling. And I, I saw her recently and interviewed her uh, when they had the exhibition at uh, the Liverpool uh, Museum for her. Sadly, she's now died. But I went up to her straight away and she went, Peter Price, you're still here. Um, that's a really important point because when you were younger, you felt that you couldn't tell anybody or talk to anyone. And what we reiterate in all these podcasts is that having somebody to talk to, somebody to offload to. And in the last podcast, it, it wouldn't work for Alan to, to speak to counsellors, but he had support, a support network around him. Right. And obviously your relationship... Um, but you saying that was, was really interesting because... What people don't know, I've got a friend about 10 years ago who is gay and never came out. Mm -hmm. And everyone said, but it's not anyone's place to tell anyone because once you say it, it's out there forever, forever and ever. Amen. Mm -hmm. So it's their choice. I will say, and this is controversial and people will not agree with me. And this is an interesting point, but I'll say it. 50 years on, on radio, I have told everybody my story. I will help anyone, but I say quite publicly to any gay footballer, do not come out. I wouldn't right. wish that on my worst enemy, the vileness that they're going to face. Mm. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. and I know a lot of people listening yeah. will not agree with that at all. Well, that, I've, I've written down last night talking about working in the media and obviously um, being around lots of people from... from you know the music industry and and and, and f famous people and how would you feel that the um media was adapted over your time working in media uh from like the 70s where where um you know people like freddie mercury were were demonized in the press for who they were and then a little bit later footballer justin fashionu who mm. who obviously was the first openly gay mm. footballer and the media attention that he received which then led to his eventual downfall and 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 death. Um, do you feel things have changed in the media at being somebody who's worked in the media for so long? I, I thought they had changed until right now with mm. what's going on with uh, Russell, uh, uh, Philip Schofield, the newsreader. I, I thought everything had changed, but now I think uh, we're living in a world now because everybody can self judge on social media. And I think it's sad. Now, I work as a comic as well. I've been a comic for 50 mm. years alongside being a broadcaster. Me, Larry Grayson uh, and Danny LaRue used to get heckled outside the theatre by gay people saying, we weren't doing the gay people 
any favours? Oh, yes, we were. I was on stage as a gay comic laughing at myself, saying, hey, I'm no different to any of you. So how dare they uh, outside uh, march? Outside? I'll never forget that. I, I coped with it. Larry Grayson didn't cope with it at all. And we were the forefront yeah. to make people understand, you know, that, that, that we're human like everybody else. It's also, you just said about sports and things like that with people, uh, because for me, uh, I'll just slip it in here, you know, Ireland beating South Africa in the war, in the Rugby World Cup, but we'll move on from there. But the, one of the famous, brilliant referees, Nigel Owens, mm. so respected throughout the world uh, by all uh, uh, rugby players and rugby fans alike, whatever, he was on Desiree Discs and he actually says, I don't want to be gay. It was this, I want rid of this thing. So he, he actually went to the doctor to be chemically castrated because he wanted to, to get rid of this thing, this disease, this process. And he did. He actually tried to commit suicide. He tried to kill himself. And I've got a quote here. And it's kind of maybe, it maybe touches on yourself as well. He says, it was only when my mum came to see me in hospital when I tried to take my own life. And she told me, if you try to do anything like this again, then take me and your dad with you because we don't want to live our lives without you. And to me, whenever I read that, I was just thinking, bloody hell, like, you know, unbelievable. And whenever you see people like this, whenever you see other rugby players like Gareth Thomas, there was a, a fellow over in Ireland, Hurling is the sport we play over in Ireland, there's Danilo Cusack. Uh, he wrote a book like, you know, Come What May. And I know a lot of sports people who have come out have read this book, who quote this book. And what he had, and a lot of them had, they had that support, they had the people around you. So, and I do like what you actually said there, how you had your community and they were there for you, you know, but there was still this, taking this leap forward, like, you know, this kind of thing. And I just, I just want to thank you so much uh, for your bravery mm. and your courage. Seriously, like, you know, I mean, so, so much, like, you know. Uh, any... it, it has been amazing to hear you know it's, it's it's such an emotional subject and I personally I want to thank you as well you know and I did my nurse training many many years ago back in Chester so the diva was something as students that we learned an awful lot about and being you know a young student no one believed the, the books that we used to read you know like you said someone's in there because they had a child out of wedlock or someone's in there because they've yeah. got down syndrome or you know the list of things were why people were in there and homosexuality was one i remember reading and almost tearing up thinking i've got relatives mm -hmm. who were openly homosexual mm -hmm. and if i knew that that would happen to them then i got really angry about it you know and to your story Peter, yeah. thank, thank you so much you know yeah. it's absolutely incredible thank you and Okay. And on to um, the lizard question, yeah, yeah. I guess. So, yeah, the thing is, I will say about the lizard question, uh, you lot don't know this. Uh, I spoke to Pete on the phone. He says, Daddy, whatever he says. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, talk about, I'll talk about the lizard. And I was just like, Pete, like, you know, uh, my daughter sent this to me about Pete Price the lizard. I was going, what the hell are you on about? Like, you know, so do you mind telling Pete? Well, to finish off, <laughs> uh, uh, if it's still left in the edit, <laughs> to finish off, um, it, it's the most amazing true story. Mm. Um, and I lecture at universities and talk about show business. Mm -hmm. And I did a lecture at one university and walked in and there was 600 students and I'm sitting there and I'm starting to talk and I went, stop, woo. Right, let's get this out of the way. I'm not a lizard. And they all screamed with laughter. Yeah. Then I got on with what I was doing. Mm. On radio, 50 years, 
on radio, 27 awards. Got to throw that in. Um, And a boy came on and said, why won't you have David Icke on your show? David Icke was, for those people that don't know, a very famous sports commentator who became the son of God in his eyes and destroyed his career and now is one of the biggest conspiracy theorists in the world. And I have interviewed him since. But he always said that the royal family and the Rothschilds, who own the banks, apparently, are shape-shifting lizards. So this 14-year-old boy came on my show and said, um, why won't you have David Icke on your show? And I said, he won't come on the show. And he said, because you're a shape-shifting lizard. That was it. <laughs> Three minutes. A three-minute call mm. is now famous worldwide because a young man... Uh, thought it was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. Mm. He was a WWE wrestling fan. He wrote a poster out, P. Price is a Lizard, and got Hulk Hogan to hold it. <laughs> Hulk Hogan then got two million views and hadn't a clue what the poster <laughs> was about. And then from that, it exploded around the world. And just recently, there has been a documentary made. They were with us for three uh, years and it's Pete Price, the Lizard of Liverpool, and it had its premiere at Fact, and it's hysterical. Yeah. It's not out there for people to see. It's going to be eventually, but they're using it for festivals. But it is the most bizarre thing. Mm. And the sad thing is, to finish off, I've been 50 years in the business. I've had albums. I've had TV series. I've worked with some of the greatest stars. I have had everything, and I've had the most amazing radio career and I'm only going to be remembered as a lizard. Nah, you won't. <laughs> Definitely not. We, we, we can thank Hulk Hogan for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Listen, if Hulk Hogan came in through into this room and yourself here, I think the applause will go to you. Yeah, yeah. yeah Don't you yeah. worry about it, all right? But as, as Gollum just said, I think one of the things that hopefully you will be remembered for is your bravery and yes. your openly and honestly and things mm. that it will change and has changed, you know. So once again, thank you so much for coming on to the Manog. We, we massively appreciate it, Pete. Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Why not subscribe? You know it's free. So join us and tell your friends. It's great going on walks and doing whatever you want to do and then putting Pete Price on. We've got a back catalogue of over 100 interviews. Join us. Subscribe. It's free.